Drink! It's the right choice! The only choice! Drink! Siempre viva! Live forever! We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Chucky, wanna play? You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. Be afraid. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Ghouls and gore. And sometimes a little more. My bloody podcast. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to my bloody podcast. New episode incoming in your ear holes. And I'm Brian Kluger, and I am joined by the host with the most, the man who, if I were ever to take an elixir of eternal youth, it would be this man, Preston Barta. How are you, good sir? Doing good. Going to provide some comments here they're gonna turn some heads <laughs> we're gonna turn heads we're gonna crack knuckles and we're gonna paint the town in a skin <laughs> color uh of course we are talking about the 1992 film the summer blockbuster death becomes her directed by robert zemeckis written by martin donovan and david kep starring meryl streep Goldie Hawn, Bruce Willis, and Isabella Rossellini. Not to mention, there are cameos from Sidney Pollock and Fabio. <laughs> Crazy world. Uh, this movie was released July 31st, 1992. Middle of summer of 1992. I was 10 or 11 years old. Didn't even have my bar mitzvah yet. Crazy. Movie cost $50 million. It went on to make $150 million. And this is... This movie is not called Death Becomes Her. It is called the Oscar-winning Death Becomes Her because it has an Oscar. We're going to get into that. So, Preston, Death Becomes Her. I remember seeing this in the theater and loving it. And even to this day, to this day, and I don't get why, I do still firmly believe this is Meryl Streep's Goldie Hawn's and Bruce Willis's best film role they have ever done. And I am shocked and appalled they did not get Oscar nominations for it, especially Bruce Willis. Because when you think of Bruce Willis, you think of Die Hard, you think of Pulp Fiction, you think he's more of a subdued actor. You think of M. Night Shyamalan. He, he, he does a lot of emotions or, you know, lack thereof subtle emotions with his eyes and his facial features, but never really have we seen him like this cartoony persona like in this. And he, it's perfect, even from his physical walk and mannerisms. But you watching this for the first time and then coming back to watching it, do, do you agree with any of that? Oh, I 100% agree with you. I think it's just a nice departure for all three of those actors to be in something that just is so incredibly fun. And especially with what you said about Bruce Willis, I think probably the one role that he's had that comes somewhat close is his voice work in Look Who's Talking because he has to raise his voice. He's like, oh no, Mr. Man, or whatever it is. And he 
it, it, it's like he starts off this way in this movie. Like he's, he's more, he's more subdued. Like you said, he, he's always kind of played these like macho actor roles or so to speak. And there's just a slow progression. And then it just hits the accelerator um, for the light last hour or so and it's just such a blast uh, it's just lightning fast comedic jokes and just being able to see Meryl Streep just drop drop these lines that I've never seen her do before same thing with Goldie Hawn and uh just like really amping it up like they're all just hamming it up to the sky and it's just so delicious it is so delicious. So death becomes her. It kind of follows Bruce Willis, who's this, you know, doctor plastic surgeon who's, you know, seen Goldie Hawn, this character who's very uptight, very prude ish. Um, and then her friend, who's like this actress, this famous person, Meryl Streep, uh, beautiful blonde, kind of aging. Bruce Willis falls in love with her, leaves Goldie Hawn. And it's kind of, most of the movie is like this bitter rivalry and uh, like enemy on enemy of uh, jealousy of these two women. And it so much so like it, it does like in today's world, it would be a different movie, but it deals with like an unhealthy mental illness of jealousy and envy and stalking. Um, and weight gain and all of this stuff and depression. Uh, but it's done in like very tongue in cheek that Robert Zemeckis could do. And basically what happens, these two women who are very, um, very unhappy with their looks, their physical appearance of aging or being too fat or anything like that. They find out about this woman who has this elixir that gives them eternal youth. They don't age. They don't die. Uh, that's the case. And so there's a murder plot and it kind of becomes uh, almost like a Frankenstein twisted horror comedy with Bruce Willis stuck in the middle with his addiction to alcohol and everything. Yeah. And it, when I'm saying this, it just sounds completely batshit insane, but it works. And we love Robert Zemeckis, mostly like he gave us Forrest Gump he gave us back to the future but in his recent years he hasn't really stuck any landing uh but this movie is like epitome of golden Zemeckis in filmmaking because there's so many great moments in his best friend being Spielberg you know you can see those little aspects in his filmmaking and characters that really drive it through but do you, do you think like if this movie were remade today, it would be more serious and not as tongue in cheek? Um, well, I would say because of movies like Megan and Malignant that it's still possible because like watching this in the 1992 mindset, it's very crazy that this movie came out. It was like a mainstream movie because it's like in the same box as like reanimator almost. And if it were made today, I think that it's possible that it could still touch on the same beats and character specifics. It might be, the issues might be slightly different, but uh, I, I would think it would still kind of be pretty close. I, Cause I think there's, there's a growing appetite for this right now. And through movies like those two that I mentioned, 
I think that uh, audiences would eat it up. I I uh, think so too. I think so maybe, too. Maybe not as much money. I don't know if they would get as much money as they did uh, $50 million then. I don't think that it would. So maybe maybe the project wouldn't be as quite quite as ambitious to see some of the neat special effects and practical effects that they do in this. I don't know if they would have get, given them that much money. They would have to find a another creative way to go about showing things like that. It is interesting because all of these aspects in the film of, you know, Bruce Willis's character going after two women and leaving and having kind of abusive relationship um, and then his his alcohol intake. And then, of course, Goldie Hawn's unsettling infatuation with killing and stalking Meryl Streep and Meryl Streep having the other side of being a very abusive uh, wife and verbally abusive. There's all these aspects and of the movie that just how how could you you had to play it serious, but with this movie, with this story and script, it it was like a very dark comedy for most of the movie. You know, only in the last 20, 30 minutes do we get, you know, the the very memorable sequences, you know, of the two the complete women. unhingedness. Right, right. And so, and then, and then you know, I, I think with that, I that's why I have to commend the writers and Zemeckis for keeping it more or less lighthearted. And then sticking that landing so perfectly because watching it again, I, I just, I couldn't help but think like, oh man, if this were made today, but you said like, again, Malignant and Megan there, it's, it's coming back that kind of, fun goofiness is happening so upon watching this again preston how happy are you to see these three you know legends in hollywood who are more or less known for not these cartoony roles really really just let loose oh it's it's just 100 percent pure joy like i said like with like goldie hahn seeing her pretty much uh you know Maybe it's a hat tip on behalf of Robert Zemeckis to put her in a dress that's very similar to Jessica Rabbit. Um, right, so, right. So there's that. But there's just, uh, oh, man, I don't know. My mind's going like a million different directions because it's such an exciting movie. But, yeah, it, it really is just so so wonderful to see Goldie Hawn just really just have fun. It like It seems like all these actors are having fun and not taking a paycheck. Um, because the, the writing, it you know, as ridiculous and absurd as it is, like, it's really sharp. There's some stings that Meryl Streep has that uh, I would have to look at my notes, but I was take, writing them down. I was like, geez, that was a good burn. Um, and so she just has all these, like, great lines and then just Bruce Willis's characters of, of Ernest Menville playing, just being this character who's just his anxiety is through the roof. He's like freaking out. Like he's trying to bridge these, the, the, the different personalities of the, the, the two women and trying to normalize the situation, contain it, put it all in a can. And he can't. And uh, just to see him running around and freak out is, is just so much fun. And so I have, I just don't think that there's a, a bad quality to this film really at all i think it's one of my favorite movies that is just 
one just just completely absurd in the same vein as as a uh, reanimator that it can you can make these really ridiculous movies but really put some smart stuff in there and it's so daring that like you said it tackles all these different subjects with the plum so it, yeah it's great man it is it is so good and you have to talk about not only the delivery and dialogue of these three actors but also their physical uh, their physical acting, like how how Meryl Streep walks and tiptoes around, how Bruce Willis in his manic states all the time is doing his body language. Like it's 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 this movie that you see like, wow, they really are great actors, because now when you see a movie with any of them, you're just like, OK, that's Bruce Willis. OK, that's Meryl Streep. OK, that's Goldie Hawn. But in this movie, you see these characters and I yeah. don't know what it was about this movie. Was it just like the height was some of the height of their career? Because I would say Bruce Willis really, you know, he went on to do Tarantino. He went on to do M. Night Shyamalan. But with Meryl Streep, you know, she she's done fun. She's done serious but nothing like since like this, she hasn't done anything like this. And I don't know why. Yeah. I don't know why either. It's kind of like, um, I was thinking that same way when, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman was alive, that he was just picking all these roles that just didn't seem like, cause the, he, he started in the industry with all these fun roles, like from like Twister and Boogie Nights. And even though Boogie Nights kind of still straddles that line of being a serious movie, it's still a fun role for him. And then he did movies like Capote and, and Moneyball, but Moneyball still fun. Um, that just didn't show these other sides to them. Like there, there's a, how should I articulate? Like there's a prism to them. Like there's just different sides to them and they just don't get a lot of opportunities to flex these capabilities that they have in different genre arenas or narrative arenas. And um, yeah, I can't really think of many Meryl Streep movies that are quite like this where she's, I don't know. Unhinged. Yeah. Yeah, some people like Mamma Mia and things like that, or Ricky and the Flash, where she's trying uh-huh. say what you will about the quality of those movies, but um, th- she's at least doing something that has a different uh, flavor to it, so to speak. Right, yeah, for sure. And this movie outdoes them all. And so exactly. Isabella Rossellini is down she's she's very beautiful but she is gorgeous in this movie like she's just yeah. it's probably the the costumes because you know she's just got just got <laughs> jewels on basically and you see kind of like every aspect of her i mean there's a neat uh-huh. scene with her right yeah right aspect aspect uh and you know this was Ross she was fairly young and she her commitment to this role where she seems evil. She seems great. I don't know. I mean, she's been a lot. She said she's 70, but who knows what the, uh, what the real take is, but she lives in this castle, which is like Dr. Frankenstein's, you know, Transylvanian castle with young male servants, such as Fabio and it's like this eyes wide shut theme of, yeah. you know, the very wealthy and elite. And, you know, we'll get into like the funness of the party, you know, that she throws every year and who shows up. But uh, 
I that character is always intriguing to me because you never know like where what what's her what's her goal what how does she survive yeah. how you know how does she look so good still because she probably has the money and has the way to take care of her but I, what do you think about this Isabella Rossellini character the um, uh, what's it called what's her name Elizal Elizal von Ruhlman. Um yeah. yeah she's what, what's cool about her is that she's not a I don't know if you can really technically call her a villain she's just the supplier like she just has this thing but it's ultimate like the characters themselves in that Meryl Streep Bruce Willis and Goldie Hawn like they're their own worst enemies like they're they're the enemy is society telling them that they need to look a certain way and behave a certain way and by taking this miracle elixir this magical elixir they can achieve those personal goals um but all uh isabella rosalini's character is doing is just giving that to them she approaches moments like especially when she approaches bruce willis when he's about to uh take it trying to persuade him yeah she doesn't really have much to gain other than like filling out the parties that she has because the 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 most interesting thing about it is that the fact that these people who take it are going to live forever. And the deal that she makes with them uh, saying like, Hey, you can take this. It costs, it costs, it costs different things to different people. Uh, most in most cases, I guess it's money uh, to be able to, I don't know, afford to do all of what she does and live in a life of luxury that she has to swim in the nude and um, just have, uh, Chippendale dancers around her 24 seven to be her fetch boys. Um, so, uh, yeah, she's just, she's just interesting. It's not like at the end of this that she's, Oh, I, I have your soul or I have this, like there's, it's just the fact that these characters who decide to take it have to live forever. They have, I guess there's somewhat of a loose contract there that they have 10 good years to build to look the way that they do and give it out the best creative things that they need to do in order to be a success. But then they have to kind of vanish because people will notice that, Hey, you're like 70 years old, but you look like you're 23. That doesn't make sense. Um, and, uh, but maybe their bodies fail them and they have to be able to, have some upkeep so i don't know there's just a lot of really fascinating things uh going on here within a movie that's just absurd and having fun right right there there is that absurdity to it but it's it's done so well and again tongue-in-cheek um to a certain degree and you know watching this movie did you get since um Zemeckis and Spielberg are friends. Did you get a sense that maybe Spielberg came on set or had like, you know, there, there's like little Spielbergy moments to me in this. Yeah, but I feel like Zemeckis has had somewhat of a handle when when it came to like special effects. Maybe some of the emotional beats probably more so leaned on Steven maybe for some advice, but uh Zemeckis has shown that in his career too um especially when you get into Forrest Gump um right like he, he brings more emotion to to uh a movie that still has special effects that's a part of it but it's not the main part of it it's just like 
the backdrop or there's just these little details but here more so it, it plays a bigger part because you have a character with a hole in their stomach and then you have a, a, a person whose head completely turns around they hurt themselves they're broken limbs but yet they maybe don't feel the pain um, and because they live forever they don't die um, so it's just like they're Humpty Dumpties that can uh, where they have to put themselves back together again um, but that that eggshell is going to get pretty gross. That eggshell did get pretty gross and it's pretty great. And that's why we have to talk about the visual effects of this movie, because when I said this was an Oscar winning movie, death becomes her won it for visual effects. And even today from 1992, sitting there and watching Goldie Hawn sit on the couch with the shovel handle sticking yeah. out of the couch and it going through her still looks amazing. Yeah. <laughs> That's still yeah. pretty fantastic right there. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that whole sequence of like from the moment that I guess we're in spoiler territory at this point with uh, Goldie Hawn, she takes a shotgun blast to the stomach in like the last uh, in the finale where they have a square off between Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn. Um, and so she gets shot in the stomach. We think that she's dead, but she actually took the elixir herself. And um, and it becomes part of the joke, too, or, or it becomes a joke where Meryl Streep's like, I can see right through you or whatever right. it may be. Um, and so it's just like you can't take your eyes off of like, Man, in 1992, how did they achieve that? I guess they, you know, stacked shots and things like that. But it's really impressive that they did that. And especially with what you said, when she sits down on the couch and the shovel just goes right through her and it makes you laugh. But then at the same time, you're like, my God, how did they do that? Um, and so, yeah, it's 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 pretty astonishing. I think there's probably a little bit of like you can see since the smoke and mirrors a little bit with when uh, Meryl Streep has twists her head around. She breaks her neck and her head's turned around. Yeah, um, you can kind of sense it a little bit, but it's just really ambitious that they're going for it and that her her face, her as in Meryl Streep instead of like looking like some of the B movies that we love from like the eighties, where it involves like maybe a character breaking their head, you can, or like even Terminator when Arnold Schwarzenegger is like ripping off the skin off his face. You can tell that it's a prop right. um, of a head here. You can only tell that it's a prop when they're doing profile shots, but it's just cool. It's like part of the charm of the movie. Um, but yeah, the fact that they go for it and they put Meryl Streep's face, like planted it on a prop, essentially, I guess, yeah, um, is pretty amazing that they can render it in such a way that it moves, even though it does look a little funky, but you you believe it. Well, that's early. It was early ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, George Lucas. And, you know, this movie came releasing in theaters in July of 1992. This was a year or two prior to Jurassic Park. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of those visual effects people and cinematographers went on to do Jurassic Park uh, with Spielberg. And so that's pretty amazing that they were doing this stuff with ILM and it won the Oscar. And of course, you know, Jurassic park did too. It's just this. I feel like this movie was not milestone in filmmaking, but it definitely showed the world that like, these are some of the effects that we're going to yeah. 
unleash in the next couple years in a very big way. Yeah, it helped push the needle for sure. It did. And I, it's, it's, isn't it crazy to think that Death Becomes Her is an Oscar winning movie? Like, it's amazing to me. But I'm also still upset that, like, how do you not recognize these three actors for their, their roles? Like, I don't, I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around. I mean, it's the same thing with like Michael Keaton and Beetlejuice. You know, you're just like, yeah. how did he not get a nomination? Uh, but I guess, you know, as we've always talked on every podcast about Oscars, there is a reason that's called Oscar bait. And those are not usually the movies people, you know, vote for. Yeah. There's a conversation being had after many, many years, it seems to try to get the Academy to take roles like this more serious. And and we have in, in, in some moderations, like with, you know, uh, Robert Downey Jr. getting nominated for Tropic Thunder or even Johnny Depp a little bit for Pirates of the Caribbean. Like they're, we're, we're, we've seen a few signs, but it's just not 100% there. There's just so much conversation being had and so many things going on with the Oscars in terms of, um, you know, picking diverse uh, roles and, and what have you, that it's pretty complicated and it's hard to please all these different things. But um, we, we hope through more and more conversation, especially with like Tony Collette and Hereditary that um, even though it's a more intense role, not as uh, fun, but it's kind of fun, um, that we'll begin to see more and more roles like this pop up because they're, they're great and uh, they're, they're artful in their own way and and very impressive especially as you said like we watch all these we look at the filmography that these actors have and and this really sticks out um and is brings a lot of joy so i yeah i hope that more happens in the future but it's yeah it's pretty damn shame that they didn't get the recognition that they did at the time but they were probably just happy with money like it's just like hey i can do all this and fully commit and people will talk about it they probably didn't know at the time that it would have the legs that it that it does um but it's celebrated and i'm sure they're proud of it no i think th- i think they are proud of it uh i mean how would you not be of, of this movie because it still has legs it still is so super fun to watch you know you have to talk about the very underrated scene of comedy genius and that is with sydney pollock as the mm. doctor so in this part of the movie um, there's like kind of a a moment where Goldie Hawn and Bruce Willis are plotting the death of Meryl Streep. And it comes to happen that Meryl Streep is hanging off the end of the stairs. Bruce Willis taps her and she falls down the stairs, breaks her neck. And uh, he brings her to the doctor. I mean, she's still alive, but I mean, she's dead, but she's alive in that kind of zombie way. Uh, but like normal acting to you or I and brings her to the doctor and the doctor is Sidney Pollack. Uh, and what transpires of him figuring out that she's dead, but alive in front of him is so good. Like the way he like listens to her heartbeat with the stethoscope and then just throws it away and him like just losing his cool. And then his eventual, like, you know, he, he was too, too much in shock. He couldn't live. Yeah. it's just that mo- that scene still sticks with me it's, it's still so funny to me and how he's like moving her wrist and the neck reveal and 
trying to like hit her temperature and she's just like going on like oh do i have to be here well like what do you think about this oh it's like the quaalude scene in wolf of wall street like it's just it's movie within a movie moment uh yeah yeah it's he he delivers he delivers the the moments so well in like this kind of shocked realization of that uh, she's dead uh, she's alive, but she should be dead. It doesn't make sense. That how do you not feel your wrist bending all the way back like it's the rubber in uh, Chamber of Secrets with Harry Potter? Like it just uh, and it just logically does not make sense. And then that her temperature is like what was it eighty degrees or yeah eighty eighty degrees because your your body's supposed to be ninety eight and she was eighty yeah yeah <laughs> um, and and then where it ends up with him is just like. It's just like, man, how I'm jealous that you got to see this in theaters. I don't know if you remember like being able to watch, like to watch this at somewhere like Fantastic Fest or something and just seeing people like watch this for the first time and just pick up on all these little moments that are just served up on a platter to the, to the audience. And uh, man, it would have been really great. I don't, do you remember any of those little details or is it just like the funness of the movie itself that sticks? I out? mean, I remember like the stethoscope scene because I thought that was really funny because I was like, oh, oh a doctor uh, would the, the threw it away. Yeah, yeah cuz he's like he he like taps it. He's like, "Ah," and listens again. He's like, "Well, oh, yeah. you know, doesn't even say anything. He just throws it away and gets another one." And I remember that little moment and then I always remember that I always thought was funny was Bruce Willis because he says it's a miracle. But then when Goldie yeah. Hawn is alive, he goes, "It's another miracle." Yeah, and then exactly. that that line to me was so funny because he delivers it so well. And yeah. they're both like, "No, it's not." Yeah, and it they they all of them take moments that like if you read it on paper, you would think nothing of it, but the way that they deliver it it makes it super memorable. Like I remember uh, one line that Meryl Streep has when she's going over to her uh, boy toy's house to essentially have an affair on, on with, uh, just have an affair with, with somebody who's not Bruce Willis. Um, and she says something like, if you're going to like, if you're going to lie to me, lie faster. Like there's just all these little uh, nuggets here and there uh, that are, that are such a joy. Uh, there's even a moment where she yells flaccid, like, yeah. like several times. And it's so, so great. So Meryl Streep has, it's one of her only roles where her acting octave range where she has a very low voice, but then also yeah. she can have a very high voice. Like when she says the word I'm cheap, and, yeah. but then she gets really into it. And I was like, Oh, even when they're fighting with the shovels and she's like, ha, I was like, Oh my God, yeah. this is like Zorro. Like it, it's to still, I keep reiterating these three need oscars like an ensemble they're so good okay preston did you coming back did you notice did you did you find your your favorite uh actress in there in the little small little cameo uh yeah um kitty foreman yeah yeah kitty foreman from 70s show i know you like her a lot and you just interviewed her recently for 70s show uh, but she's in this movie almost like for nothing. Yeah, she, yeah, it's cool to see like the the beginnings of 
these actors who I love and cherish so much because she went on to do like Friends episodes. I know you hate that show, but she she did like an episode of Friends where like her and Giovanni Ribisi have a baby together and it's it's great and so yeah just to see her like oh like oh my god she has no lines whatsoever just reacts um but man it's great to see her um so that's another joy of watching a lot of these older films that are uh that were popular at the time is to see like actors in uh who who are big it's kind of like watching the outsiders and being like oh my god they're all huge now um or have gone on to have great careers to have or have great projects that they've done since then um so yeah it's, it's really it's a really a treat to see that and you know it, it brings up something that they've never really done a retrospective on this they've never had everybody come back for this movie but for this movie i i I don't know anybody who does not like this movie. I mean, it does not have nowhere near a top rating on Rotten Tomatoes by any means. Uh, I do believe Siskel and Ebert did not like it back in 1992, which is weird to me. Uh, But I just remember when you bring it up today, people love this movie. There's something in here's the thing. So I did not know this until, you know, researching it for the podcast, but this has become much like the Babadook become a, like a beacon for the LGBTQ uh, community where like RuPaul's drag race one season did a whole thing on death becomes her and uh, the LGBTQ community, have adopted this movie into their, into their home. And uh, did you read about this? Uh, I I haven't, but uh, thinking back on the film and like specific details of it, that's really awesome. No, that it's really cool. And I I love it because those two characters that uh, Meryl and Goldie play Helen and Madeline are just pure bliss really yeah like they have a Thelma and Louise kind of connection in the end where they we don't get to see it per se too much other than just like their connection toward the end but they spent like 37 years together as as (laughs) who knows what happened so what's uh, what's great about them that those characters is that they're both obsessed with their looks they both love to look amazing and gorgeous and fabulous and their their wardrobe is out of this world throughout the movie and they act very sweet but then they get really angry at each other and you know over the course you know that fight scene you know there's like a few minute fight scene and all of a sudden they just kind of like I'm sorry about this. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. And that next scene, like Bruce Willis has checked out by then. Like they're yeah. fighting and he leaves to like pack his shit up. And yeah. they come in and they're like, oh, you know, all those years of previous torment and hatred, it's all gone now. Yeah. And it's so freaking good. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, like we're, I'll, I'll spend many decades with you painting your ass or whatever they say. <laughs> so it's great. Yes. Oh, it's like God. it's like they've completely accepted their their uh their situation of having to make themselves look young every day and they're just comfortable with each other and it's so great. 
But still, that, that that's the scary thing. I think the scariest part of this movie is when they're sitting on that bench, they're laughing yeah. about, you know, we're, we're going to take care of each other. We're going to wipe arch each other's asses <laughs> forever, forever. And yeah. then you see like them stop laughing, stop smiling. And then it cuts to black 37 years later. And, you know, so the last scene takes place at Bruce Willis's character's funeral 37 years later. And the minister up on the pulpit in the church, giving the eulogy says, you know, his character, God, what was his name? Dr. Menville, Ernest Menville, Ern. Ernest Menville always said life began at 50, which was a great joke. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he like went on to have like eight kids and like tons of grandkids. And he started all of these amazing philanthropic adventures and sort of things. And you, meanwhile, you see those two in the back, still snarky, still pretty upset about the choices they made for the most part. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, it's, it's, it's ambiguous as to, are they really enjoying life? But you know, there was an alternate ending to this movie. Did you know this? No, I didn't. So there were several scenes that were deleted that have never been released to the public before. And I hope to God at some point they are, but one of the, the alternate endings that didn't play well was that 37 years later, or actually right after the events of Bruce Willis escaping, um, what's her name? Uh, the castle. The castle, he meets a bartender who is played by Tracy Ullman. And uh, those two hit it off. And then 37 years later, they are living a great life with kids. And Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn go to see him and they see like him having a great life type of thing. And so that was the original ending. And they thought mm. that was, I guess the audience thought that was too sad because it didn't have the comedic aspect of Meryl and Goldie falling apart literally and physically uh, and then having the joke like, do you remember where you parked the car? And I think yeah. that line sealed it because it's like they're still friends. They're bickering like an old married couple, which they are forever. <laughs> Yeah, like it's that whole ending is great because like it has all those jokes and still ha sustains the joy of the movie. But you can like stop for a moment and think about it like it's like, oh, they're feeding us this commentary about like how if you don't put so much of your energy in trying to make yourself look like perfection you can achieve perfection through your work and your creative ambitions and that is exemplified through bruce willis's accomplishments in this film as his character and then to see them in the back not really knowing like what kind of life they live but the fact that they're uh well they are at a funeral and they're having to shield their face so you know good on them that it just worked out that way but if they didn't have that shield they would be looking like tar on themselves colored tar um, as they do when they actually do show their faces. But yeah, it's kind of like they just have this complete acceptance of their their situation and what has happened to them over the years. Like they they had to have an inkling of knowing just knowing that 
yeah, we're going to have greatness for a little period here, but we're just going to be fucked for eternity. And <laughs> you get to see this through that moment of like them saying, where you where did we park the car? Because it's like, uh, like we're so, we've been so screwed and we know that uh, Bruce Willis is essentially getting the last laugh in beyond the grave but yet it's just like uh, such as well, life well, well that's what's great about that very end scene goldie hahn and meryl street are sitting in his funeral giving the eulogy and goldie hahn starts to cry meryl streep says like are you crying she's like no and they get up to walk out and as they're walking out the minister saying like this is a man who literally lived the best life he yeah. lives on and he really found the secret to eternal life. Yeah. They stop in their tracks. That's a like epiphany moment. And then what happens? They go blah, 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 blah. That's like the actual words yeah. they use. Yeah. yeah. Funny. And they, they go out and they're arguing like, I need the can of spray paint to like make me look young again. They fall, they bust open, literally, do you remember where you parked the car? And that's like, that's what the great dark humor is about this movie and why it works so well. It's like you have no excuses, you're just giving middle fingers. That's it. <laughs> yes, middle fingers to everybody. Uh, was this, so I guess... With Robert Zemeckis, uh, this was 1992. So after this, um, he went on to do Forrest Gump. Probably, I mean, besides Back to the Future, Forrest Gump was like his is his biggest movie. Um, so coming from Death Becomes Her to something like Forrest Gump's pretty incredible, right? Yeah, it's kind of like you know, um, I don't know, James Cameron going from aliens the true lies to titanic it's just like right. they're nice flips of the switch or even as i mentioned with uh reanimator going from reanimator like Stuart gordon and and brian usna doing like honey i shrunk the kids but they he i remember when i talked to brian usna he says it's you know it may seem really different but it's really not because there are like continuations to the stories in like very subtle ways. If you think about it, like if you just change up the music a little bit or you don't have the actors come in so hot, it will there. It could be portrayed in a different way. Like it could have been captured in a different way. Um, so it's just interesting. So yeah, yeah, it, it's, on paper, yeah, it looks really unique that they go from film to film, but there's probably is or probably are some unique connect. Like there's a through line with them all if we really dig for it. Cool. But I'm cool. not going to do that right now. No, yeah, no, we'll be here all day. Uh, Death Becomes Her is still wonderful to watch. It is available to watch on Peacock. Uh, right now, it is something you should do. It, it they released a a shout Scream Factory Collector's edition of the movie a year or two ago. Um, let's it see. might have been. Uh, I can't say the year on it um, that quick enough, but yeah, it was a couple of years ago because it may, may have been like eight or something. Is um, it Scream or is it Shout? 
It, it's it's Scream. Okay, Scream Factory, perfect. And and it, and it. So when you mentioned earlier that there's not really a retrospective, there is a retrospective making of on here, but it's it's not with the actors. It's with Zemeckis and uh, the writers and the cinematographer. Right. Who. I mean, the cinematographer went on to do Jurassic Park, like David Kep wrote Jurassic Park screenplay. You know, there's they've stayed in line with Spielberg and Zemeckis. Yes, Flintstones. So uh, I'm glad that it, yeah, I forgot about that. Well, when I said retrospective, I was I was meaning like, well, why can't we get all the actors? The to come actors back and talk yeah, because it is it is beloved uh, and it really showcased. And, you know, yeah, it's we- very unfortunate. We just have you and I just have all these dreams like Leonardo DiCaprio talking about Critters Three and like we, we just want to see this so bad because the these actors they they had really great beginnings, fun beginnings, and we want to see them talk about it because they spend a lot of time talking about their their meaty meaty very roles dramatic or meaty. work. Um I wanna see them talk about what Critters Three. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it would be great so at some point we will uh do that and we'll have a good time with it um but yeah death becomes her if you haven't seen this in a long time please revisit it it really does hold up it really hits in all of the perfect notes and all the check boxes and it, it and like that one unfortunate thing is it makes you wish so badly that you could get these actors to do this again. Like you could get these actors to come into a role, let loose, have fun with it. Yeah. It has to be like, there has to be some class to its absurdity. I think we've seen plenty of movies where comedy, like you watch a comedy and you'd like see these actors step in it and it's like, Whoa, that's that that's a little much. Um, right. So it, it, it takes having a competent filmmaker that can pull out the subtleties to build to make something like this very lasting like this one. So uh, there, there, there's a lot more that's involved, uh, but I do want to see more actors taking chances like this because they do pay off. And when they do, they're great. They they are perfect, perfect. Uh, so yeah, we are My Bloody Podcast. We're here every week with a new movie to talk about. And this is horror. Like, they're basically zombies. Frankenstein has a little Transylvania in there. Like, it's a, this is in the horror genre. Yeah, yeah. Or even, uh, oh, damn it. Why am I blanking on that name? The, the Stalker movie. Uh, fatal attraction oh, yeah yeah fatal yeah for sure for sure there there's all of that in there so yeah please check this out we are my bloody podcast thank you for listening as always uh don't forget to check press and i out on our other show fear and loathing and cinema podcast uh we have lots of good stuff on there most recently the wild wild west and the flintstones that we covered we have a great show coming up on that next week as well you can find preston barta you can find him at freshfiction.tv you can find him at the denton record chronicle find him on youtube and twitter at preston barta and on instagram blu-ray dad find all of his interviews find all of his reviews they're amazing and also me, Brian Kluger, highdefdigest.com and YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Brian Kluger. Check me out doing all those fun reviews and articles. We'll see you next time. <laughs>